Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Hope I didn't scare you there, listeners. But this is our first Halloween-themed episode. We are talking about witches, and we are talking about trolls. So, ladies first, we're going to begin with witches, and then we're going to hit trolls at the end. It's going to be a little bit more brief, because I did a lot of study on witches. Did a deep dive on that, not of all of which I can share, but hey, maybe in a future episode. I am up to not one, not two, but possibly three aspiring witches on my Facebook friends list. These are people that I knew in high school who decided somewhere along the way that they wanted to be witches. And this, I think, is indicative of a broader trend. It's not just me who's been noticing it, but even the New York Times. They recently ran a story called, When Did Everybody Become a Witch? Witch Parties? Witch Protests? In a bevy of new books, we have reached peak witch. So I'm going to be reading a few excerpts from this article written by Jessica Burnett. So here we go, and I think this really does set the stage. Fifty-one years ago, a group of protesters calling themselves WITCH, which is all spelled out, uh, it's, it's an acronym, guys, anyways, staged a Halloween hex on Wall Street. Dressed in all black with long peaked hats, the women sneaked through the narrow streets of downtown Manhattan late into the night, making their way to the entrance to the New York Stock Exchange, where they oozed glue into the latches of the doors. The next morning, the male bankers couldn't get in, and the Dow reportedly fell by 13 points. 13. Ooh. We didn't consider ourselves real witches, but we used the moniker because of what it represented. A powerful woman. That's what they think it represents, said the author, Robin Morgan, one of the protest organizers, noting that the acronym, which stood for, quote, Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, probably wouldn't go over well today. I don't think terrorist conspiracies ever go down very well, but hey, times change. All right. Today, there may be no need to sneak around. Real witches are roaming among us, and they're seemingly everywhere. This is the article continuing here. Haven't you noticed witches are your millennial co-workers doing tarot card readings on their lunch breaks and professional colleagues encouraging you to join them for a new moon ceremony aimed at career success? This happened to me the other day, the author writes. Witches are influencers who use the hashtag witches of Instagram to share horoscopes, spells, and witchy memes. And they're anti-Trump resistance activists carrying signs that say, Hex the Patriarchy, also the title of a new book of spells. And, quote, we are the granddaughters of the witches you weren't able to burn. Witches are panelists. They are podcasters. They are members of The Wing, which calls itself a coven. They are in-house residents at swanky Manhattan hotels. And some might say that one is even a presidential candidate, Miriam Williamson. Alyssa Murano of Charmed Fame recently fundraised for Williamson. Coincidence? Read more. We have questions about the witch at the residence of the, Mohan- of the Manhattan Hotel. So it has another linking story, which you guys can certainly click on if you check this out and want to read more. It continues on with a few quotes. I think almost, um, pro- I think everyone probably is the son or the daughter of a witch, says Augustine Burroughs, the best-selling memorialist whose new book, Toil and Trouble, tells the story of his own witchy coming out. 
which is a loaded word, but I do love it, he says, noting that his husband thinks it needs some PR help. I mean, I didn't choose to write this book, it just came to me, and that tells me that something has been unlocked. It's time. It is the moment, somehow, for witches to come out in all their vibrant diversity. Additionally, Americans of all ages and genders are more spiritual than ever. According to a 2017 survey from the Pew Research Center that examined New Age belief, 60% of Americans believe in one or more of the following. Psychics, astrology, the presence of spiritual energy in inanimate objects like mountains or trees, or reincarnation. More than a quarter of adults in the U.S. say they think of themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And here are a few selected quotes I pulled from elsewhere in the article. One, they quote Publishers Weekly saying that it is now the season of the witch. So they're not the only ones observing this. Also, Pam Grossman says, I often say, show me your witches and I will show you your feelings about women. And one gay male witch mentions coming out of the quote broom closet, which I find hilarious. All right, so we are certainly in a witch frenzy. Lots of women think that witches are the icon of the powerful woman. We will find that that is not true. We have even gay men coming out of these broom closets. And we have this as a test of what we think women ought to be like. Some people think they should be like witches, but we will learn they ought not be. So let's dive a little bit into this modern movement. Much of it is surrounding the topic of Wicca. Many witches say that they practice Wicca. So where on earth did Wicca come from? Well, it all started with an old retired government bureaucrat named Gerald. And like I always say, nothing says mysticism and transcendence like being named Gerald or working at a government office. From the Encyclopedia Britannica, Gerald Brossomer Gardiner, from 1884 to 1964, Gardiner spent most of his career in Asia, where he became, became familiar with various indigenous religious traditions. He also read widely in Western uh, esoteric literature, including the writings of the British occultist Alistair Crowley. Quick digression, who is Crowley? Well, again, pulling from a few facts in the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was a man that was great at chess, great at mountain climbing. He climbed K2. And he was also great at lucking into a large inheritance. Yet, Crowley was tragically bad at not being a cult leader. Giving himself a nickname, he chose The Beast 666. He was also a terrible poet, but, you know, most poets are. And finally, he was very bad at formulating religious commandments, choosing, above all else, the following, and I quote, Do what thou shalt, do what thou wilt shall be the whole law. Yes, that's what he chose. And Crowley was called by the British press the, quote, wickedest man in the world, proving that not only was he very wicked indeed, but that wickedest is a proper conjugation of the word wicked. He died in poverty and obscurity, but not before creating some new tarot cards, writing the exquisitely titled book, quote, The Diary of a Drug Fiend, and being summarily kicked out of Italy. But back to Gerald. Gerald the Pensioner. Upon returning to Britain in the 1930s, Gerald became 
involved in the British occult community and claimed to have discovered a group of witches operating near England's New Forest in 1939. He later alleged that it was their teachings that provided the basis of Wicca, although historians disagree on whether the New Forest group ever existed. If it did, it was likely formed earlier in the 1930s, following the 1951 repeal of Britain's archaic witchcraft laws, Gardner Gerald published Witchcraft Today in 1954, founded his first covens of followers, and with the assistance of High Priestess Dorian Valentine, who lived 1922 to 1999, developed what became known as Gardenian, Gardenian Wicca. Americans joining Wicca were influenced by the new social movements of the period, informed by second-wave feminism. Dianic Wicca was formed in 1971 by Hungarian imprimatur Susanna Budapest, born in 1940, as a woman's tradition, placing central focus on the goddess drawing, on the on the goddess. Okay, drawing on the gay rights movement. The Minorian Brotherhood was established in 1977 by Eddie Brzezinski as a Wiccan tradition for gay and bisexual men. Growing environmentalist sentiment also had an impact on Wicca, which by the 1970s was increasingly presenting itself as a nature religion. And radical left-wing politics came to the fore in the work of Starhawk, born in 1951, an American practitioner who helped establish the reclaiming tradition in San Francisco and wrote an influential book, The Spiral Dance, in 1979. Although many of Wicca's earliest exponents espoused conservative and right-wing views, by the close of the 20th century, the Wiccan community had come to be numerically dominated by people with progressive and left-leaning opinions. So, so many modern witches draw their thought from a failed poet, yet moderately successful cult leader named Crowley, whose grand idea was that people ought to do whatever they want, a tried and true recipe for horror and atrocity. And also from a mean old bureaucrat named Gerald, who probably lied about finding witches in the forest and started up some nonsense pseudo-religion instead of fixing an old Land Rover and popping back some pints with his mates, as he should have been doing into his retirement years. So yes, these witches are indeed fighting the patriarchy and putting off this male-made religious norms of theirs. They're doing it all right, just look at them go. But in fairness, um, the, uh, the feminism did get involved a little bit later, mostly in America, even if it took these old white guys to apparently get Wicca off the ground. So, swelling their ranks today is, as we learned, feminist ideology, gay rights, radical left-wing ideology, progressivism, and environmentalism. But they did eventually dig deeper into those pagan, occultic, druidic, and mystical roots, and this yielded a deep focus on the power and importance of the natural world. Why? I thought nature was good. Well, it is, dear listener. But let me explain why nature worship is uniquely bad. First, I will reference you back to an episode that was a while ago, maybe a couple months ago, talking about 13 reasons why Lucifer was the angelic governor of nature, and maybe specifically animals. So you can go back and check out those reasons. I won't repeat them all here. 
Next is that there's a right and natural awe at nature that ought to point us ultimately to its creator. But when this gets perverted, it lands us in idolatry, paganism, and naturalism, even naturalistic atheism. And as Jordan Peterson is um, always talking about his exegesis of the Elijah story, which I think is a reasonable exegesis, he shows that the God of the Old Testament puts himself in opposition to nature gods and says, I'm actually above the natural order. I'm higher than the nature gods. Okay, so we have deification of nature is one pillar, but another core of witchcraft is rebellion. It's rejection of any authority. Here's what the Bible has to say. Saul's people took spoils from the enemy king and sacrificed them to God when they were supposed to be destroyed. Oh, wait a minute. That's my commentary. This is the verse. <laughs> That's the context. Verse 22, somewhere in Samuel. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt, burnt offerings and sacrifice as in the obeying of the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. And this does foreshadow how Saul later disobeys, and instead of listening to the living and authoritative voice of the prophets, he chooses illicit and occult means to get information at the witch of Endor. So, the summary. Um, witchcraft seems to have at its core three things. One, Gerald. Just kidding. We're done with Gerald. One, it has a rejection of authority, an idolatry, normally in the form of deification of nature, and it has Satan's favorite commandment, do what thou wilt, as this will be the whole law. So, do whatever you want, deify nature, making yourself an idol, and reject authority. These are the three pillars of witchcraft. Now, we read in that New York Times article that um, it was quoted that the witch is the icon of the powerful woman. That's what powerful women look like. They look like witches. Well, I think this is fundamentally ridiculous, horrend horrendously false. Although leftist culture sees witches as the icon of the powerful woman, here's the thing. This is a Catholic podcast. We think that the Virgin Mary is the real archetype of the powerful woman. So Mary is a virgin. She's the Virgin Mary. She's not promiscuous, like many witches are presented to be. Her visions are prompted by her sober obedience, not a drug-fueled forest rave. Her power comes through being chosen by God, filled with grace and cooperating with his plan. But witches grasp at power through myopic self-assertion, manipulation, and superstitious ritual. Their aim is not obedience to God, but self. Rebellion is privileged over cooperation or obedience. The witch is just found off in nature, but Mary is embedded in civilization, in family, in responsibility, in religion. The witch is often viewed as ugly, but Mary is pictured as beautiful. The witch consumes children, but Mary, in the Incarnation, becomes the mother of God. And I could go on, but suffice to say, Mary is the definitive archetype of the powerful and perfect woman, and she's not impressed with the sage-burning, spell-casting, herb-mixing, card-reading, crystal-collecting, dribble, claptrap, and balderdash. 
and nonsense of these self-styled witches. Now, Pam Grossman told us that, quote, I often say, show me your witches and I will show you your feelings about women. Hey, Pam, let's go. So let's do a breakdown of some of the common features of the witch as it's trickled into our common culture and show how the witch is not a portrait of the powerful and aspirational woman, but instead is a picture of the defective mode of femininity. The right mode is the Virgin Mary. The defective mode is characterized by the witch. And don't worry, we'll pivot to trolls and we'll do the same. So the first thing which is common with witches is that they live in seclusion. So they don't have a husband, they don't have a father, they don't have kids, they don't really have a community other than their coven. And this is problematic, right? Men are meant to be sons, fathers, and brothers, and women are meant to be sisters, and mothers, and daughters, and aunts, and be embedded in a community, be able to play multiple roles, and take up many responsibilities. But in a coven, there are no responsibilities. The only rule is to do whatever you want, and you only come together for the purpose of using one another to get your own aims. This isn't a, a, a relation of virtue whereby you gather around a common good and then pursue it side by side virtuously. No, a coven is one where you gather around your own selfish self-interest and you use one another and to drive your own ends, often in a manipulative or superstitious way. But an interesting part of the description of witches are the witch's house, one of which is probably well known. It comes from this story of Hansel and Gretel where the witch lives in a house which is covered with buttercream and cookies, etc. And what that means is there's something beautiful on the outside of the witch's life. But when Hansel and Gretel are actually lured in, they find that inside, instead of them getting to consume delicious candy, they become what is consumed. Inside of the witch's house is danger and horror and evil and vice. It consumes. It doesn't give. It just consumes. So the witch is one who can be outwardly attractive, but inwardly evil. One who presents themselves as having many wonderful goods on offer for others, but actually will consume and destroy. So the house is pictured as having death on the inside and some type of enticement on the outside. Also, the story of Babi Yaga. This one comes from Slavic folk folklore, and I absolutely love the description of her house. It's found out in seclusion in the forest, and it's elevated on chicken legs which is an interesting design element, to say the least. I don't think Chip and Joanna Gaines would do that. So, a couple other features that it has, in addition to the chicken, chicken legs, which make it revolve around in circles, it has a door that closes on its own, and windows that are made of fire, which I do think Chip and Joanna might do. So, what do these things mean? Well, it means that her home is entirely unstable, ungrounded, and chaotic. It is constantly revolving. It is not secure or stable. That is the icon of the witch. Also, the windows of fire. I love this imagery. What does fire do? It consumes. Okay. Well, what is a window for? It's for looking out of. So what does this mean? It means that the picture of a witch 
is one who lives in a place with windows of fire. So she looks out into the world through the lens, through the window of consumption. That's important. All right. What does all this mean today? Where do we see this today? Well, there's the popular TV show Sex and the City. And these women are effectively a coven. They don't have any obligations or responsibilities to family, friends, relatives to speak of. And they only look through the windows of their turbulent and unstable lives to view people and things as consumable. It's an ethos of sycophantic self-indulgence, which is somehow celebrated as empowerment, which it's not. So how not to be a witch in this regard? I would recommend using gratitude and temperance in place of shameless self-indulgence. If you don't have family and you don't have a lot of responsibilities, well, take on the role of mother or sister or daughter that you can. There's always a way to express that. And form a life that is inwardly stable, life-giving, and well-ordered. Plato talks about having the parts of a person well-ordered with reason, at the top. It surveys various things in the world, and then it presents good things to one's will. And then the will chooses one of these good things, and then you as a person live your life in light of these goods. That is a stable, internally ordered person. That's what we want. That's where we want to live our life. But listen to Crowley slash Satan's rule. He wants to invert that. He wants your life to revolve on chicken legs. He wants you to look through windows of fire. He says, do whatever you want. He says, oh, go ahead. See this this fruit here that's good to eat? So he appeals to the base passions first. He's inverting. He's turning this whole thing on its head. And then he's saying, you should want this. And then after that, you come to understand the truth in a perverted fashion. And that's linked to consumerism, too. We're presented things which instantly appeal to us through these windows of fire that we create. And then it drives us to want these things. It prompts a movement of the will. Then we form our lives around this, and we say, this is how we're going to shape our lives. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to think about with our reason. That is a disordered life. We have to have the correct ordering. We have to have a reason at the top, governing our will governing our passions. So that's how not to be a witch. Next up, witches eat children. The witch values her own power, her own lifestyle, and her own hunger over the lives of children. And sadly, in this respect, there are many witches among us. One out of three women will kill a baby in her womb. One out of three women. That is horrifying. And here are the top-sided reasons, according to the very much pro-abortion Guttenmacher Institute. They say, from their most recent article, among the structured survey respondents, the most, the two most common responses for why a woman had an abortion, number one, having a baby would dr- dr- dramatically change my life. Hmm. Second, I can't afford a baby right now. So what's going on? They're preferencing power, lifestyle, and indeed hunger over the lives of their children. Though the hunger is a bit of a stretch because the quantity of goods and services which come from all aspects of the federal, state, local system and a variety of charities ensure that mothers and children who are in poverty are 
very much cared for. Those resources certainly exist. So how not to be a witch in this respect? Well, this one's pretty easy. Love your children. Don't kill them. Quite simple. Next one, casting spells. So the vision of the witch is one that casts spells. So my dear female listeners, have you ever experienced another woman speaking secret words aimed at destruction and the harm of others? Mm-hmm. Did you attend middle school? <laughs> There's no need for magic here. Gossip and backbiting will do the trick. So tip number, what is this? Three, how not to be a witch is don't gossip. Don't spread rumors. And here's what I suggest that Socrates says, not Crowley and not Gerald. Socrates um, writes, well, Plato writes, recording Socrates. One day in ancient Greece, an acquaintance met with the great philosopher Socrates and said, do you know what I just heard about your friend? Hold on a minute, Socrates replied. Before telling me anything, let's put it through the triple filter test. Triple filter, the man asks. That's right, Socrates replied. The first filter is truth. Are you absolutely sure that what you heard that you're about to tell me is true. The man replied, well, no, I, I just heard about it, and Socrates interrupted. All right, so you don't even know if it's true, but let's try the second filter, the filter of goodness. Is what you're about to tell me about my friend something that's good? The man replied, no, to the contrary, Socrates interrupted again. So you want to tell me something that's bad about him, but you're not certain it's true. Okay, let's try the final filter, the filter of usefulness. Is what you're about to tell me about my friend going to be useful for me? The man replied, well, not really. And Socrates concluded, well, if what you want to say is not true, is not good, or useful, then why say it at all? That is a wonderful filter against gossip. So I would say the uh, defective mode of femininity gossips and backbites. But that's not what the Virgin Mary did. Read the Magnificat. Her mode of speech is one that praises God. And in response, we call her blessed. So I would invite you to use the filter of, is it true? Is it good? Is it useful? That's the opposite of being a witch. Also, making potions. This is where every single Christian girl instantly unsubscribes and simultaneously sends me hate mail. The Gordianot101 at gmail.com. Essential oils. There, I said it. While not evil, it does seem to play on a particularly feminine impulse to ascribe power to natural products that are not terribly well grounded, in fact. And I can already hear the response. Well, my friend Becky uses peppermint oil on her skin, and she looks fabulous. Wrinkles and blackheads don't lie, Jake. Well, your friend Becky aside, let me leave you with this warning. Superstition is an offense against our rational nature. If we are ascribing properties and powers that things do not have to our potions, concoctions, and elixirs. Then going on to hold these up in opposition to the normative modes of curing similar ailments um, as a means to subvert, subvert the power of the hierarchy using occult, meaning hidden powers of our natural ingredients, then this has strong witchcraft vibes. So be careful of the attitude and spirit you have in approaching this stuff. 
So there I said it, send the hate mail. If you are trying to say there is a authority which says one thing, and listen, doctors and science, wrong all the time, but speaking in the abstract, if you're looking at this authority and saying, I want a mode of subverting it or disobeying it or rebelling against it by using natural things, which may not necessarily have the powers which I am really ascribing them, um, I think you're on dicey territory. So be careful on this one. <laughs> but there are other potions that witches are famous for. And no, I'm not trashing all of your essential oils, Becky. Okay, let's read from the Apostle Paul. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I will tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past time, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drugs, potions. Um, this is pretty much wrapped up in the word sorcery that Paul uses. In the Greek, it is pharmakeia which if that sounds familiar, it's where we get the word pharmacy, a place where you buy drugs. And traditionally, witches have always loved drugs. They see it as a means to commune with spirits, to transcend the earthly, and to arrive at the spiritual. Now, don't do drugs, kids. Um, instead, be mindful that... Um, there's improper ways to use a variety of things. If we're using any type of substance just as a form of escapism, this could be alcohol, food, or, I don't know, regular old drugs, your methamphetamines, your cocaines, your, your marijuanas, etc., um, then you're on pretty shaky ground. Medications can be good because they restore the natural order, but drugs, sorcery, pharmacaea, well, that can be bad when it perverts and distorts what is natural. So that would be kind of the natural law reasoning. Are we pointing a thing of a given nature back towards the good that it naturally aims at? Or are we pushing it away from that good and towards something which is either evil or less good in some sense? If you are doing it, pharmakeia in the second sense, I would say, certainly condemned. You are using your peppermint oil to, I, I don't know what they do with it, to exfoliate. I don't know what exfoliating is, but if you're using it for that, if it works and you have a rational basis, that's okay. But if you are doing this as a subversive act against the hierarchy, if you are trying to assign to its superstitious and occult properties, well, don't do that. All right, the next feature of the witch is... Maybe the most famous, that is, she rides on a broomstick. Now, the earliest depiction of a broomstick riding, which is from 1451, when two uh, illustrations appeared in the French poet Martin Lefranc's manuscript, Le Champion Le Dame. Um, note that is the champion of Le Dame, not Le Champignon Le Dame, which would be the mushroom. And as History.com reports, in this image, there is a head covering on the witch, which symbolizes the group of the Weldensians, a group which I think deserve their own episode. In the ensuing years, they became deeply associated with witches 
and the church often mentions witches and Waldensians in the same breath. In fact, common usage at the time just equates witchcraft and Waldensianism and treats them almost interchangeably. Why? Why was this group and witchcraft viewed in, in such a similar manner? Well, for a couple reasons. One, um, this particular group championed female priests and preachers. And two, heresy and witchcraft are just really tightly linked. Why? Well, as we read from that passage, I think in Deuteronomy, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So this puts heretics and witches on the same side, that is, in opposition to the authorities that Christ establishes, authorities like the church or even the state. So here's a few tidbits about these Waldensians. The Waldensians are also called the Poor of Lyon. It was a group of heretical um, break-off Christians who wanted to live a life of extreme poverty. Now, the mode by which they did it, and there's a variety of other things that they were doing, became condemned. And instead, the Franciscan tradition took up the role of being in poverty for God. Um, and that was the right way to do it. Now, this group also rejected the authority of bishops, so rebelling is as the sin of witchcraft. It looked to the Bible alone, rejecting tradition. Rejecting tradition. What does that sound like? Well, recall with Saul, he had a pro-witchcraft move. He decided to not listen to the prophets and instead to seek out a witch. Now, the prophets seem to occupy an interesting role that has strong parallels to today's um, covenant. Back then, they had the Torah. That was the written text of Moses. But they also had the prophets. That was a living voice which comments on and applies. It creates a tradition around the use of the written law. Now, Saul rejects that, and when he rejects that, he makes a beeline for the witch of Endor, an illicit means of understanding. We're meant to embrace the licit and right mode of understanding. And that would be the tradition passed down from the apostles, oral and written. And it includes a living voice with authority, the authority of the bishops, which has their root in Jesus Christ ordaining his apostles. Now, this group also refused to celebrate church holidays, and it was ordaining female clergy and preachers. And finally, they wore very strange shoes, which were open at the top, something which is mentioned in a variety of articles about these people. So the shoes must have been quite strange indeed. Now, a large number of these Waldensians joined the Reformation at Geneva, entering through the Calvinist tradition, though others followed my least favorite reformer, Zwingli, and are said to have influenced that movement. And um, I don't think that's a huge surprise, because in many more charismatic movements today, particularly in the U.S., they trace their religious lineage back to the Moravians, who Zwingli uh, aided and abetted at his castle. And it's this strain of Christianity that was most eager for not only superstitious and wildly uh, questionable and um, strange praise and worship, but also for female clergy. It seems that the strict 
um, legal and, and systematic nature of the Calvinist reform movement may have blunted this effect, but it did pop its head up later in the Unitarian Universalist Church that split from the Reformation and also now championed things which we find in the witchcraft movement. Stuff like the super progressive left-wing ideology, and all of this was Again, from the Encyclopedia Britannica, guys. <laughs> so this isn't just like from a right-wing pub, uh, you know, pundit or something. Witchcraft is tied up with progressive leftist agenda, gay agenda, um, and uh, later waves of feminism. All right, but I digress. Back to the broomstick. This seems to have a couple roots. One was that brooms are commonly laid up by the hearth to clean up ashes, and the idea slowly came that uh, that was basically where a witch would park their vehicle, that they would leave through the chimney, come back through the chimney, and leave their broom right there, kind of like parking a car. Another one, this one's from history.com, is that um, there is a pagan fertility rite that involves sweeping with a broom, so that paganism, occultism, magicalness, and broom stuff all became rolled up into the witch. I don't know how that... Um, relates to flying, but hey, whatever. And finally, remember we said that witches love drugs. In fact, um, they, you know, in the modern time, um, are influenced by Crowley, who wrote about being a drug fiend. Well, there were certain hallucinogenic drugs that if you ate them would cause many, many problems, maybe even death, but there were ways to apply them in certain places that uh, could get you high. And this is a family podcast, so I will leave it there. That is reason number three for the broomstick, um, riding the broomstick thing. Okay, moving on. I think as a symbol, um, the broomstick seems to symbolize responsibilities, specifically responsibilities in the home. And using these tools, um, not to put one's home house in order, but instead to spread destruction abroad. So what's tip number four-ish, or whatever we're at, of how not to be a witch? Well, I would say it's um, to take up responsibility that's local, and don't flit about being an activist for evil. The witch movement, now encompassing the gay agenda, radical anti-female feminism, transgenderism in a veritable panoply of other evil leftist causes um, is not something that you should be flying about and promoting. Instead, what we all need to be doing is investing in our local communities, in the people that God gave us, the people right in front of us, in our family, in our friends, our community. We should be taking up our responsibility and opposing the witch agenda, also politically. And that last part is important because... If it wasn't for female voters, liberal presidential candidates would never have won a presidential election, I think in at least something like 50 years or maybe ever. So women, tip number four, how not to be a witch is don't support these types of uh, witchcraft adjacent ideologies and don't vote people like that into power. Focus on your local responsibilities, the people that God placed in your life. And that's actually much closer to what it means to be the ideal woman. Because again, our archetype is not the witch, it's the Virgin Mary.
who changed the world and the entire course of human history by being the mother of God, by being the mother of the church, by being somebody who wasn't pleading for wild revolutionary ideologies, but instead was in fervent prayer to her creator to have the grace of God, not just poured into her, but into all of her children in the church. Next, the black cat. I have very little to say except for babies are better than fur babies. And if you are one of the people who use the term skin babies to refer to regular human babies in opposition to fur babies, well, skin babies sound horrendous. They sound gross at worst and Nazi-esque at also worst. So I would invite you to talk about babies and not skin babies. So it is intrinsically order, disordered to put any four-legged, or for that matter, any number-legged beast in place of a child. And Pope Francis is with me on this one. He says, we see a form of selfishness today. We see that some people do not want to have a child. Sometimes they have one and that's it. But they have dogs and cats that take the place of children. This may make people laugh, but it is a reality. So we shouldn't be placing animals in the place that children should have. So now we have to speed through trolls. I think we have a pretty good picture um, of what it looks like to have a defective mode of femininity. And I think at every turn, it is in opposition to the correct mode of femininity, which is typified by the Virgin Mary. It was funny. Um, years ago in the RCIA program I was going through, there's a woman who is who is hearing about how women couldn't be part of the priesthood. And I know I've shared this story before. She kind of folds her arms and goes, well, what is the highest place that a woman can have in the church? And one fellow who seemingly until that point wasn't really paying attention just lifts up his head and goes, mother of God. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, all right, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. So the church is a place where full femininity can be expressed in its proper mode. And it's elevated. Mary is called the highest creature in all creation. Becoming a witch, embracing the, the black cats, the, uh, the broomstick riding, the drug doing, the potion making, the spell casting, the gossiping, the children consuming, and the life of seclusion and coventry. I think that that degrades and damages women. Um, yeah, let's get to trolls. All right. What does a troll look like? Because I think a troll is the picture of a defective man. And unfortunately, we don't have quite as much time to speed through this one. So here are a few things we learn about trolls. One, they live under a bridge. If you know guys who are like unmarried and, you know, just kind of like floating through life, you know that they basically find a bridge. <laughs> There's the pictures online about what a guy's apartment looks like versus what a girl's apartment looks like. And guys can basically do with a comfortable chair and maybe a TV. That's it. We, at our worst, are content to just live under a bridge and not really aspire for much more. It's only when we choose responsibility or it's thrust upon us that we have to come out of the bridge and join society. So 
the defective mode of masculinity is seclusion quite often from civilization and from hierarchy. And it's this like minimalistic urge to just be content with a very pathetic amount of goods. And trolls are also seen as dirty, unhygienic creatures. And I think we've all seen that. Like guys that we know that just have those wild, unkept beards and crazy hair and they're they're just let themselves go and they're fat and stinky and they they don't dress well and their apartments are a wreck and dirty. And listen, most guys listening to this think, yeah, I've been there a couple times in life. I know I was being a troll. And then another thing that we often see with trolls and other similar mythological creatures is that they don't like sunlight. And I think there's two points that can be made here. One, is that they stay up later and later and later. That the defective mode of guys, and you see this a lot of like college guys, and I've been there too, is that you stay up really, really late and then you just sleep in. You get kind of this lazy process of becoming slowly nocturnal. And it does further isolate you. And it's generally not a healthy way and mode of life, especially if you're like staying up playing video games. You're avoiding the sunlight. You are being a troll. You need to come out of your bridge and join civilization. Enjoy the created order. And also there's something else going on. The sun can represent a, uh, a uh, spotlight to perform. Or it can be an unveiling and a, uh, a light which shows who you really are. Guys can often fall into this mode where we brag about things that we totally could do. Or, hey, if we were in this situation, we would do X, Y, and Z. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of a troll mentality because you're actually afraid of the sunlight. When push comes to shove, you're not doing it. You're not going into the sun. And if the sun hit you, you would you would shrink back into your bridge. Like, I know people who... Um, would talk a big game about how, oh yeah, I'm going to, let's say, uh, go to law school. Oh yes, I know so much about the law. I'll go to law school, I'll ace every class. But they don't actually do it. They don't actually apply. They want to brag about these things and present themselves as these great and powerful creatures, but they're scared of the sunlight. They don't want to have their actual abilities truly known. That's a movement of terrible pride, which leaves them in the dark. Also, pulling from the Norwegian folklore, um, they get beat up by a billy goat. What does this mean? I'm sure you guys know this story about the troll that's underneath the bridge and he comes up to force people to pay tolls. And then eventually this billy goat comes, knocks him off the, the, the bridge, beats him up. What's going on here? Well, it seems to be a tension between the troll's way of life and the billy goat way of life. Now, both of them are these little beastly creatures, right? But it's showing that at very least the billy goat pulls his own weight, produces things, right? They produce milk. They produce other goats. They are useful in society. But what's the troll doing? Well, he's just parasitic on society. He's extracting from society. He's not giving to society. And what that story shows is that the mode of masculinity that actually produces for others 
is greater than and more powerful than the extractive mode of defective masculinity, which seeks to just cause people to pay tolls. Which leaves me with, um, these trolls are predatory. And that's another defective mode of masculinity. Think of the gang hanging out in that, that dark alley. They, they're just hanging out with their friends to extract, to intimidate, to take, and to victimize. That's a defective mode of masculinity, which is shown in the troll, troll archetype. Now, there is a figure in uh, folklore and mythology which is very much the opposite of the troll, which guys need to be instead. So don't be a troll. Instead, be the knight in shining armor. What's that mean? And why do we commonly hear the shining armor? Well, there's a couple things. Recall, the troll is dirty, unkept, and puts very little effort into making himself or his home have any type of a good appearance. But this knight has shined his armor. He actually takes care of his appearance as opposed to the troll. Also, he's a knight. That's somebody who's nested in a hierarchy because he took on responsibility to become something. He's not just a default under the bridge goer. And knights have duty. The troll has no duties. He can do whatever he wants. He can just become nocturnal. He can just stay up and sleep in. He has no duties or responsibilities. The knight is honorable. And the troll has no honor, happy to be extractive on society. The knight is willing to self-sacrifice, to fight for ideals which are important, to defend people who need defense. That is the opposite of the troll who's only in it for himself. And finally, the shining armor. When the knight comes out into the daylight, when truth shines on who he is, he's actually gleaming more brightly as opposed to the troll who is shown to be ugly, horrendous, wounded by sunlight, wounded by truth, instead of lit up by it like the knight in shining armor. Okay, well, let's conclude it right here. Guys, don't be a troll. You know what being a troll is like and don't do it. And ladies, don't be a witch. More like the Virgin Mary. And to everybody, happy Halloween.